of God brings heaven to earth. It leaves culture upturned and the kingdom upright. The kingdom is pure and holy. It is blessed and set apart. It is righteous beyond all understanding. It is generous beyond earning. Our God's kingdom is good news. His kingdom is saving grace. It rattles our reality and shakes us awake. And it pours out of us as salt and as light. It brings perspective that changes the way we think. It brings vision that changes the way we see. It brings growth that changes who we are. It brings surrender that changes how we live. The kingdom is kindness that doesn't feel fake. And the kingdom is patience that doesn't make sense. It is forgiveness when it doesn't seem possible. It is for the poor in spirit, the lowly, and the persecuted. The kingdom is his, his kingdom is ours, and the kingdom of God is here. He was a legend in baseball coaching. John Scalinos was in his late 70s, he was thin, he was balding, and he walked up on stage in front of a whole host of baseball coaches and players. He had home plate, a baseball home plate, hanging from a thick string around his thin neck. He spoke for 25 minutes without referencing home plate. Then finally, he said, hey guys, you probably might notice that I have home plate hanging around my neck. And people laughed about that. So I got a few questions for you. How many little league coaches do we have here in the auditorium? And a handful of people raised their hands. He said, okay, little league coaches, how wide is home plate? Somebody yelled out 17 inches. I said, okay, good. All right, in Babe Ruth's day, how wide was home plate? Somebody yelled out 17 inches. High school coaches, college coaches, where are you? They raised their hands. Okay, in the baseball fields on which you coach, how wide is home plate? 17 inches. There are a few minor league and major league coaches in the audience. So he said, major league coaches, how wide is home plate in the major leagues? And they yelled out 17 inches. Then he asked a different question. He said, Major League coaches, what do you do when you have a pitcher that can't put the ball over that 17-inch plate? Do you widen it to 20 inches or 25 inches and say, they're there, it's okay. You, you just got to get it in the ballpark. No, you don't. You send them to the minors. His point is you don't widen the plate. In other words, you don't lower the standard. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, we have had a battle, and it's a daily battle. That daily battle is to take God's standard, God's word, and we soften it. We, we widen the plate. You don't like what God says about the way you're supposed to run your business with character, honor, and ethics, integrity? You widen the plate. You don't like what God says about your, your, how you're supposed to treat people with dignity and respect. How you're supposed to treat the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, the destitute, the poor you widen the plate. You don't like what God says about the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, your, sexual, uh, your sexuality, or your, your purity. You widen the plate. Have you ever considered that it's a daily temptation to widen the plate in our lives, to lower God's standards in our lives? From the bedroom to the boardroom, to our praying churches, 
to our playing fields, we have that temptation to widen the plate. It's a, a battle. And that battle is a battle of self over savior. You see, Jesus says, surrender your heart. Self says, demand my rights. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Self says, don't get mad, get even. Jesus says, hold your tongue. Self says, hold my beer. The self is all about widening the plate. Such is what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. Jesus narrows the plate. Jesus narrows the plate. Jesus always raises the standards when it comes to love. Loving him and loving others. He would say that wide is the plate, I mean the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many will find it. But small is the plate, I mean the gate, and narrow the path that leads to life and only a few will find it. Jesus narrows the plate. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week five of our series called Kingdom Culture. It's in this series in which we're pulling apart the most incredible sermon ever done in the history of mankind. It's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's in this sermon in which we see Jesus consistently narrowing the plate. I'm excited today because I'm going to talk about something that I think is very relevant to us right now. It's what Jesus says about anger. And my hope is, is by the end of today's teaching, you're going to have five ways to navigate your anger during this election season because it's going to be a prolonged election season. I'll be hanging out in Matthew 5, verses 20 through 24. And, and, and I, I will say that Pastor Bob did a great sermon last week, wrapping up with Matthew 5, verse 20. He spent a lot of time in that. So I'm just going to touch on verse 20 and then, then go from 21 through 24 after that. But we got to touch on 20 first. So let's do this. Matthew 5, verse 20. Remember, Jesus narrows the plate. Here we go. Verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, surpasses, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus tells everyone that their righteousness has to be better, has to be greater than the greatest, most moral men of Israel, the Pharisees. And it freaked people out because the Pharisees were, were zealot. They were zealous for God's word. And in their eyes, God's home plate, his word, the Mosaic law was 17 inches. And they thought they were narrowing the plate by adding a bunch of man-made laws to it. But we all know that it's easy to be legalistic. It's easy to have that checklist of religion. It's more difficult to deal with the mess of relationships. So Jesus says, no, no, you guys aren't, aren't narrowing the plate. You're widening the plate because Jesus saw that they were really good on the outside. They looked great on the outside. Their behavior looked good, but they were dark on the inside. Jesus was and is about heart transformation rather than behavior modification. And with that heart transformation, then our lives will change and our actions change to reflect Jesus. So it freaked his listeners out when he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to be a religious fanatic, that's great. If you want to be a zealot, that's great. But you better be a fanatic and a zealot about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, because against those things, there is no law. Jesus narrows a plate. How does he do that? Well, now he's going to give us an example of narrowing the plate. He's going to talk about murder and he's going to talk about anger. 
Let's look at this, Matthew 5, verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said, you have heard that it was said, underline that, to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Jesus narrows a plate. So he starts off saying, you've heard that it was said. Now, when Jesus would teach, he'd, he'd usually teach one of two ways when he's referring to the law. He'd either say it is written and he would refer directly to the law himself or he would say, you have heard that it was said, which is actually talking about the Pharisees have said this. And he starts making a point and the point is about murder. What would happen is the Pharisees would look at the physical act of something rather than what's going on in the heart. So just after this passage, the Pharisees or Jesus would be talking about adultery. And he'd say, you have heard that it is said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you the truth that anyone who looks at someone with lust in their heart, they've committed adultery. So he's narrowing the plate. He's saying it's, it's more than the action. It's more than sleeping with someone outside the marriage covenant. It's what's going on in your heart. And the Pharisees were all about the exterior. So with that, he talks about murder. He's going to narrow the plate. How does he do that? Verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry, 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 circle that, with his brother will be subject to judgment. Press pause there. I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. We're going to Greek out and geek out in a couple places today. We're going to talk about the original meaning of some words because in our English language, we can't grab the nuance of some of these words and what they truly mean. So let's talk about anger. In the New Testament, there are two words for anger. One of them, one of them is thumos. Thumb, think thumb, think moss, thumos, thumos, say it with me, thumos. Thumos is a cause and effect type of anger. Uh, you know, speaking of your thumb, it's like you, you've got a nail and you're hammering and you're hammering and you, you hit your, your thumb with the hammer and you start screaming, expletives come out, you kick the nearest puppy, you're really upset. That's what thumos anger, it's cause and effect. And that's not what the anger is that Jesus is talking about here. The other word for anger is arge, arge, arge. Say it with me, arge. Arge anger is different because arge anger comes from the deepest part of your heart. It's about bitterness. It's about strife. It's about envy. It's when you assassinate someone's character, when they come to you and they apologize for what they've done, but you won't even recognize them. You just look the other way. You're, you freeze them out. It's when you plan and plot revenge. That's important. It's when you sabotage and slander them, you sabotage their character. So you've got this side of anger called arge anger that's really bad. And that's the preponderance of arge anger. That's what Jesus is talking about here. But there's also another side of arge anger and that's righteous anger. And we got to talk about that because not all anger is sinful anger. Not all anger is sinful anger. Let me give you a few examples. In the book of Exodus, God is angry with Moses. God doesn't sin, but he has this anger against Moses. That's righteous anger. Go to 1 Samuel. In, in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul is anointed king and the enemies of Israel attack and the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul. And Saul is angry and it leads him to fight a courageous battle. That's righteous anger that he has. This specifically, this arge anger that Jesus is talking about with, on the righteous side of, of, of this. If you would go to the book of Mark, Jesus is ready to heal on the Sabbath. He's healing someone. The Pharisees come against him and he has arge anger. He's, it's the righteous anger, righteous anger against the Pharisees for not wanting him to heal on the Sabbath. Righteous anger is a good thing. 
It leads us to fight injustices. We can have righteous anger about abuse, about hatred, about human trafficking, injustice, the way the poor are treated. We can have righteous anger about racism. Those are good things. And that what that does is that can prompt us to be kingdom bringers in a very special way. Well, folks, in this season, I've had some righteous anger, and the culmination point came in the first presidential debates. I'm sitting there watching it for probably about 20 minutes, and I got so angry. Actually, I wasn't angry there. I was disappointed. I was disappointed that two men who are vying for the most powerful position on the planet, two men who claim to be Christ followers, showed that bad side of our gay anger. They assassinated character. They slandered each other. It was ugly and difficult. I was disappointed in that. But where my righteous anger came out was just watching the the whole show and all of the comments on social media, all the comments in the news feeds. It was ugly. And, And what I realized at that point was is that our culture has lost the ability of civility. Our culture has lost the art of civility. During this time especially, God is wanting us to reflect Jesus in all ways, shapes, and forms, especially in this political realm where Satan has a foothold so big. And God said, pull out his foothold by loving each other well, by not acting the way a lot of us tend to be acting right now. Jesus wants us to work out horizontally between each other what he has done vertically. He wants us to respect one another, to show dignity and respect no matter what our beliefs are. A while back, President George W. Bush was in an interview and he was asked, what was one of the greatest things about your presidency? And he said, actually, one of the the, the most memorable things was being able to turn over my presidency to the first African-American president in the United States, Barack Obama. And what a lot of people don't realize is that even though President Bush and President Obama are at opposite ends of the political spectrum, they're very good friends. And they model for us civility, that we've got to have this civility. I I, I heard recently, I believe it was this past Thursday, uh, two governor candidates in Utah actually stood up in front of the camera. I think one is the governor and one is the, the other person running for governor. And they said, hey guys, here's the deal. We both agree on some things, but here's where we disagree. It was civil and it gives us hope that we can have unity, that we can actually have disagreements. You can have oneness without sameness. But what happens is we can tend to put all of our cards into our political parties. In fact, we can be discipled by our social media feed, by our news feed, and by our political parties. Chuck Colson, who was one of Richard Nixon's henchmen, Richard Nixon's lawyers who would end up going to jail for quite some time for his participation in the Watergate scandal, said these words, that the kingdom of God will not arrive on Air Force One. And it's so true. So we have to treat each other with dignity and respect no matter what our beliefs are. Because when we attack each other, when we, we slander each other, when we attack each other's character, that's lovelessness. And in the eyes of Jesus, lovelessness is murder. Lovelessness is murder. Jesus had that righteous anger. He overturned tables in the temple, not because he hated the Pharisees, but because they had turned his father's house into a farmer's market. Jesus was never loveless Lovelessness is the issue here. And in the eyes of God, it's murder. So remember, Jesus narrows the plate. How does he do that? Verse 22, let's go deeper. 
Jesus again says, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, Raka. Some of your, uh, your translations may say, you good for nothing or you empty heads. Let's talk about Raka because it, it means to have no worth. In Jesus' time, it was a slang word. People would say it all the time. In Jesus' time, it was if you'd take a very, very expensive robe and you'd take a big chunk out of it. And and the robe then would become raka, worthless. And we know that in Jesus' eyes, everyone has, has worth. We're all created in the image of God. Therefore, everyone, no matter who they are and what they believe, everyone has dignity. And Jesus wants us to treat everyone with dignity and respect, especially when they don't treat us with that same dignity and respect. Let's keep on going. Let's look at the rest of verse 22. He says, but anyone who says you fool, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Don't miss this, don't miss this. Jesus contrasts raka with fool. The word for fool is maros, maros. It's M-O-R-O-S. And if you take the S off, it's where we get the word moron and put an N there, where we get the word moron. And it's not like Billy Bob going, you're just a moron. It's not that at all. In Jesus' time, that word maros, that meant you were murdering someone's character. You were ripping apart their self-esteem. You were stealing their self-confidence. You're crushing them as a person. person. So when you look at, 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 at raka, raka is, is about pride because you're looking down on someone. You're saying, you're, you're worthless. But maros, maros means no, you're, you're a fool and it's coming from the hatred in your heart. Now, remember, Jesus's audience was a Jewish audience. So at that time, when he says these words, they're, they're like going, whoa, I, I can't get this. Well, on top of that, he says, listen, if you say rakah, because he heard it all the time, that means you need to stand in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court of Judaism. So that's a big deal. But he said, you say fool, maros, you will be in danger of the fire of hell. Gulp. Let's keep on going, verses 23 and 24, because here's what Jesus starts talking about. He goes from murder to anger. He's narrowing the plate. Now he's gonna talk about reconciliation and really about the importance of unity. And and pay attention to this because this is so important for us. Here we go, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled. Underline that, reconciled, circle it, reconciled, stars around it to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So in Jesus's eyes, restoring relationships is so important. Unity is so important within the body that, that we're commanded. If we're in, 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 in church, we're in the worship service, Ron and Sarah are leading us into amazing worship. And you're like sitting there going, yes, yes. You know, you're showing your armpit sweat to everybody. You don't care. Or maybe you're like me from a Baptist background and you're like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Because you won't do this, but you'll definitely, oh, yes, Lord, yes. And you remember that you've sinned against someone. Jesus says, stop what you're doing. Run out of the auditorium. Don't even put your offering in those little black boxes in the back. No, you go directly to that person. You own it, you make amends, and you do your best to move forward. Jesus wants us to have unity. So back to the elections and us as Christ followers. Uh, I've talked to, to people who are both Republican and Democrat, who are Christ followers. And, they, and I've heard from both sides, how can you call yourself a Christian and vote fill in the blank and vote Republican or vote Democrat? In the words of Pastor Cameron Triggs, he said these words. He said, neither party is explicitly Christian. 
Neither party is ultimately, listen to this, ultimately concerned with ushering in the kingdom of God and submitting to biblical ethics. So we have to have unity. Unity in Christ. Pastor Brian Loritz is one of my favorite preaching pastors out there. He's at, at the Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I once heard him say these words. He says, we are all on the same Christian team. Remember, we're talking about unity here. That team is not about elephants or donkeys. That team, that team is about the lamb. Folks, when we take a blood of a donkey and mix it with the blood of a lamb, when we take the blood of an elephant and mix it with the blood of the lamb, we're gonna get a bad concoction there. It's about Jesus. And we have to reflect Jesus in all we do. We have to be united. That's what Jesus is talking about. With us as Christ followers especially, we can't be coming at each other. We have to be united in Christ. So Jesus says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, walk away and go reconcile. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and offer your gift. As I says, Jesus says, I want you to work out horizontally what I've done for you vertically. You leave church and you reconcile. But here's the thing, sometimes someone will say something against you that you don't deserve. I've had a, a couple times in my life when I've been accused of something that I didn't do. And Jesus is not saying, okay, Kip, you've been accused of this, you didn't do this, you gotta run out of church now and go make amends. That's not what he's saying, that's different. There's some, that's, that's different. Because if that were the case, Jesus offended a lot of people, but he never sinned. If that were the case, if he, if he would have to run away from the synagogue because he had offended people with some of his words, then he would never have attended synagogue. So reconciliation is a very important thing. He's saying if you sin against someone, you own it, you make amends by apologizing, you, you, you forgive and you move forward. The Apostle Paul helps us out more in Romans 12 verse 18. Look at this. Romans 12 verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, underline that, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So if you've screwed up, you humble yourself and you reach out and you do your best to reconcile. No matter what you forgive, no matter what the heinous crime that has been done against you, Jesus commands us to forgive, not just one time, not just seven times, but 70 times, seven times. That means that you're supposed to forgive over and over and over again in your heart. But reconciliation is different. Reconciliation takes two willing parties who own the issue and they want to move forward. Reconciliation depends on the true repentance and proven trustworthiness of the offending individual. And honestly, folks, some people in our lives are so toxic, so abusive, physically, emotionally, or both, that you've got to put up that healthy boundary between yourself and them to protect yourself and protect your family. So back to, to anger. I want to spend the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes of our teaching today talking about anger and how we navigate anger because how we navigate anger is important. How we navigate anger is important. What I want us to do, we're going to look at five ways to navigate anger. And I, I will admit, I shamelessly stole these uh, from Dr. Larry Osborne. He's a, a pastor down in California at, at North Coast Church. And he did a sermon, I think back in 2005, and it was so powerful, I remembered. He's, he's got, he talks about five ways to navigate anger, but I want to talk about five ways to navigate anger during this very difficult political season. Okay, so let's look at this. Five ways to navigate anger. Number one, number one, lengthen your fuse. Lengthen 
your fuse. We have people who push up against us, who, who actually shorten our fuse, where you got that short fuse, they start saying stuff, and it's like you light the fuse and then you blow up and it's a hot mess. So you got to lengthen your fuse. Well, Jesus' brother, James, gives us some words to help us with this. James 1, verses 19 and 20. He says these words. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to what? Listen. Slow to what? Speak. And look at this. And slow to become angry. The word here, guess what? It's arge. Arge. It's the same word that, that Jesus used, and it's that bad side of anger. For man's arge anger does not bring about the righteous life, living right wisely, that God desires. So let's talk about a handful of ways that you can lengthen your fuse. First of all, let's talk about social media. Social media can be a great thing, but really what I see it doing, at least in my life and the lives of so many close to me, and what I really see within our country is it, it pulls us apart. And so social media, while it can, can do some good things, it can really shorten your fuse. So maybe during this time, from this weekend until the 1st of December, you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to get off of my social media platforms. Or maybe you say, no, that's too much. I can't do that. I got to have my social media. Maybe you're required in your job to have it. I don't know. But the point is, is that you limit your time on social media. Perhaps you can limit your time to just 10 minutes a day. I'm not talking 10 minutes per platform. 10 minutes per day. You, you go, you look at it, uh, you, you're very wise with what you, what you share, you're, you, you fact check what you share, uh, you speak in truth and you speak in love and you leave it at that, but 10 minutes a day. Maybe this season, this political season, is the time in which you limit your news and what you wa how, how much time you watch the news. Many of you spend hours upon hours watching whatever your favorite news agency is. And what happens is you've got this long fuse and then you get fired up and fired up and fired up and then you blow up. As we enter what could be a very difficult election season, not knowing what the results could be with, with so many weird things happening, Maybe right now is a time to, to, if you've gone through Christian counseling for anger issues or anxiety issues or, or depression and this is affecting you, you make an appointment right now to talk to your pastor or to your Christian counselor after the election so you can set yourself up well to respond well. We're talking about having the mind of Christ. One of the things that helps me when it, when it comes to dealing with difficult people in difficult times to help me uh, lengthen my fuse, I call it the, the, the three P's of anger management. Uh, and and I, I haven't copyrighted these, but it's a sermon all in and of itself. But it's very simple, the three P's of anger management. They're not in your notes, but here we go. First of all, I start out praying. I pray for the person that, who has offended me. I pray for the person who consistently presses my buttons. I pray for the uncle, the aunt, the whoever's gonna come over to my house to watch football and, and push my buttons. I pray for the, the friend of mine who I may love dearly, but we believe differently, and he's gonna push my buttons. And I just ask the Holy Spirit to give us unity in some way, shape, or form. And then I visualize a conversation with them, the, the, the main conversation that consistently ends up being bad. And it's not where I say, okay, if he says this and I'm gonna say this and I'm gonna come back, it's not that at all. It's not like being like this. I'm, I'm visualizing being open-handed with how I'm talking to this person and I'm listening to them. I'm trying to sit in their shoes and I try to speak in truth and, and I especially try to speak in love, but I practice then pulling back and saying, you know what, this isn't, I love you too much to, to be doing this. We're, let's agree to disagree. High five, you mean too much to me. Because folks, what we, how we treat people 
before an election and during election sets up the scene for how we can speak into their lives, lives after an election. So I pray, I prepare, and then I participate. We actually have those conversations. And that works out so well. But for some of you, maybe right now is the time in which you need to change your friends. You've got like-minded friends. You all think the same thing. So you go out to coffee, you'll go out to dinner, you'll get together and you just start spinning up. We're talking about lengthening the fuse. And by the time you leave that meeting with your friends, you are ready to slap a puppy. You're ready to, uh, to, to do something really bad. I don't know, uh, poke a hole in a kiddie pool, something. I, you're, you're angry. So maybe during this election season, you pull back from all those friends that can fire you up. But then last but not least... Some of you have true anger issues. And instead of blaming your culture, you know, I'm a Thai and I'm from Brooklyn, why yada? Maybe you just need to own that you got some, some issues. And now is the time to see that counselor, to start dealing with that. If you, if you, need, if you need a list of counselors in the area, we can help you out in our area because it, now's the time to do that. So you lengthen your fuse, lengthen your fuse. Okay. Next one, number two, number two, let God even the score. Let God even the score. I, you know, I, God says vengeance is mine. I almost didn't do this one. I've, even this morning as I was sitting praying about this, I almost pulled this one out. I had a hard time with this one. Let's look at this. Romans 12 verses 17 to 19. We already covered 17 and 18, but look at this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We talked about that. Okay, then Paul says this. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Revenge. That's that argay anger that's not good, and I've had that. I've had that in that season. You know, when, when I see a group of protesters who are, are protesting and a white supremacist drives his car through the group of protesters. Not only do I want justice, that's righteous anger, but I want to take justice in my own hands. That's our gay anger. And God says, Kip, pull back. You do your work. You let me do mine. Vengeance is mine. Justice will be served. When I look at Portland or I look at Seattle, when all the protests were going on, some were peaceful, but then the, the very violent ones, my heart broke for those business owners immigrants who had come to this country and started over and just uh, running their own business and their businesses are destroyed and they got to start over. I had revenge in my heart because my heart broke for them. And so God says, Kip, vengeance is mine, not yours. When you have a group of domestic terrorists, and that's what they are, domestic terrorists, they're just the same as ISIS, only wearing, wearing American colors. And they decide that, that it's up to them to remove a governor in Michigan, a governor that was, do, that was elected. No matter how you feel uh, about her politics, she was legally elected and they want to step in and, and, and remove her. And a bunch of people are saying, yeah, that's right. That's right. They're right to do that. Oh my goodness. I got anger. I got righteous anger. But then I have that Arge anger that revenge. I want revenge. And God says, Kip, participate in the process and let me take care of the results. Let God even the score. 
Let God even the score. Okay, number three. This one's near and dear to my heart. I'm preaching to myself on this one. Learn to shut up. Oh my goodness. Learn to shut up. There's, it's been said, knowledge is knowing what to say. Wisdom is knowing whether or not to say it. Sin is present when words are many. Solomon tells us this, Proverbs 10, verse 19. He says these words, when words are many, sin is absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. Preach it, Solomon. Man, whenever I have been angry and I've, I've put my, my knee on the proverbial chest of my opponent, and I'm just throwing jabs upon jabs upon jabs to the face when it comes to just verbal vomit. And then when I'm done, I'm going, what was I thinking God clocks me in the head, Kip, it's time to shut up. And maybe that's true for us right now when it comes to this political season. You've spoken your mind, you've spoken in truth and love. Maybe it's time to just shut up. Maybe it's time to shut up on social media. Maybe it's time to shut up in your family or in your office. Maybe it's, it's better for you and the unity of the people around you that you've spoken truth, you've spoken love, but you don't need to keep on jabbing. Because as I said, to speak into someone's life after the election, you need to love them well during the election season. You'll thank me on this one. As I said, I'm preaching to myself. That one screams at me. So we're talking about Jesus narrowing the plate. Number four, number four, in the words of the great theologian Elsa, let it go, let it go. I can't believe Ron and Sarah do, want, do not want me on stage singing. I don't know. Proverbs 19, verse 11. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. See, our job is to pray and release. We, we, we speak truth, we speak love, but in the end, we participate. We participate in the process. That's the beautiful thing about being, being Americans. We can participate in this process. But at the end of the day, we have to let it go. We have to realize that Jesus holds all things together. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is sovereign. And if he is sovereign, he already knows who's going to win. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the king of kings, lord of lords, lords the prince of peace. And he's in charge. He understands when we're frustrated. He understands when we're bitter. And he understands that not all of us are going to be happy with the results. So we participate, then we open our hands, and we let it go. Last but not least, number five. Number five. Ooh, this one's near and dear to my heart. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. We have to realize that none of us are perfect. You know, you try to call out the speck in someone's eye, but you got a big log sticking out of your eye. That's what Jesus talks about. He says, no, none of us are perfect. So what I want to do today is I wrap things up. We're, we're going to do, uh, we're going to have uh, 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8 up here on the screen. It's a very popular verse. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8. Uh, at every wedding, I think I speak this verse. It's a verse about love, but it's also a verse about humility. Because if you would insert your name in the place of love and it, you realize that, that, that you, can't, you can't meet the bill on this. So we're going to do this. If you want to say it out loud, you can. Uh, I'm going to use my name. You use yours. And you put your name in the place of love and it. Here we go. Kip is patient. Kip is kind. Kip does not envy. Kip does not boast. Kip's not proud. Kip's not rude. Kip is not self-seeking. Kip is not easily angered. <laughs> yeah, right. Kip keeps no record of wrongs. Kip does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Kip always protects. 
Always trust, always hopes, always persevere. Kip never fails. Hashtag St. Kip. Right now, my mom's the only one in the, in the chat room going, amen and hallelujah, that's my boy. Hi, mom. She's watching us from Wichita, Kansas. Watches us every week. I love you. Uh, say hi to God's country for me. So, so she's the only one saying, yeah, that's my boy. He can do this. Guys, none of us can do this. We are all broken and in need of Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross because he knows we have to have that relationship righted with God. So he takes on all of our sins. He's crushed. He takes on our sins, past, present, and future. And now he gives us the ability to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable, because only Jesus can live this out. Only Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's only, only Jesus can do that. And I think... That's the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus narrows the plate and we can't live out what he tells us to do without him. Folks, it's about the way we love others, that we treat them with dignity and respect, especially when they don't deserve it. Because face it, do we always deserve dignity and respect by the way we act ourselves? Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And we need to understand that we are forgiven and therefore we need to love each other well. So you got five ways to navigate anger during this very, very difficult season. You lengthen your fuse. You let God even the score. You learn to shut up. You let it go. And then you look in the mirror. And as I said at the beginning, this is a battle of self versus savior, choosing savior over self. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, that if you want to be my follower, this is Jesus talking, if you want to be my follower, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. What if, what if during this season, our job is to deny ourselves and put other people in front of us, no matter what their political beliefs, to love them well, to be open-handed rather than closed-fisted, to speak truth and love, and love, but also to remember that it's about unity, unity in Christ. Jesus always narrows the plate. Are you ready to play ball? Batter up. <laughs>